reciprocals uh, uh, through my mother, perhaps, uh, through uh, experiences of being a Catholic. And I thought, you know what? I'm going to become a, a, a miracle expert. And so I set up the website, miraclehunter.com, and I started secretly loading it with information, all the miracle stories I could come across, and all the times that the Catholic Church has investigated, validated, condemned, given judgments on uh, various uh, miracles. And so you can go on my website now, all these years later, and I've got as many as 2,500 Marian apparitions cataloged, all the Eucharistic miracles, the healing miracles used for canonization. So um, it's really been a lifetime journey, but it's been a lot of fun. Yeah, and you've uh, certainly made a name for yourself, and congratulations on that. It's uh, great advice. Yeah, that is one of the, the most poignant parts of that first interview that I remember because I think it's great advice from Condoleezza Rice. Uh, let me ask you kind of a general question, then I want to get into the, the series and uh, the, the new season, Explore with the Miracle Hunter. Uh, I've often heard people say that God, you know, sends Our, Our Lady or maybe he does Eucharistic miracles or healings because of hardness of heart. You know, we ought to just believe in the revealed doctrine as passed down through the apostles and Jesus, of course. But he does all these things just because some people need it. What, what, would, you, what, would, you, what would your comment be on that as far as why God, why, why, we, why the miracles are even happening in the first place? Yeah, and I, I think that it, you know, you can trace it, you can go all the way back to when, Jesus was here on earth. Why did he uh, work miracles anyway to establish his divinity, that he was more than just a prophet, that he was actually the Son of God? And why did he allow the apostles and give them this mission to uh, travel the world and work miracles in his name? Why did he do that? Just to inspire people's faith and to uh, show the reality of these uh, supernatural things. And so when we talk about the need for miracles in the world today, I mean, uh, there's an incredible hardness of heart. I think... um, I recently wrote a book called Science and the Miraculous because uh, I wanted to present all these cases where science has uh, looked into miracles and claims of miracles uh, through the Catholic Church because so many people, for so many people, science is their God. And if there's not scientific backing for any of these things, they don't want to pay any attention. So, you know, I think that in this era of where science is king, uh, miracles especially are important. And uh, they've always been important throughout Christian history just to give people that boost of faith for people who have doubts. Uh, for people of questions, uh, give something, gives people something to uh, aspire to, I think. And it seems like there's, you know, we can go on either extreme if somebody, just recently I talked to a lady who, who claims that she had a Eucharistic miracle happen in her mouth at Mass. Uh, this was a number of years ago, but where the host, you know, turned into to flesh, you know, in, during Mass. And I think a lot of people will just believe that. You know, without any question, some people just say, oh, I don't believe it at all. There's there's a middle ground, though, in, in just kind of believing that miracles do happen. But, of course, sometimes they may be false, right? That's right. Yeah, and, and for better or worse, I, I, you know, I'm a, I'm a skeptic and a believer, so I think I like to, you know, I keep my mind open to the possibility of miracles, but I'm not credulous for everything that gets claimed to be a miracle. And I think the Catholic Church handles it perfectly because they— they will, uh, in cases that uh, have some sort of popular support, if, if there's somebody just claiming a miracle in their own home, for example, like, like this, perhaps this woman uh, has in, in, in the report to you, uh, the Catholic Church won't do anything. It's these cases where there's been a, a groundswell of popular support. You have the 70,000 people gathering at Fatima for the final apparition. Of course, uh, the Church had to do something when so many people are interested. So in these cases where there's uh, where there's support of the faithful, they'll investigate and 
you know, one of the things that's interesting is that skeptics and atheists and otherwise, maybe Protestants might say, you know, isn't the Catholic Church just propping up these miracles to try to get people into the pews to sell some rosary beads, you know, just to keep things rolling along? Well, it turns out that, you know, when it comes to uh, miracles, it's about the absolute last thing that any bishop in his local diocese wants to deal with. <laughs> you know, he'd rather that these things go away and he'll investigate them and, and try to prove that they're not happening. So the, 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 the unspoken goal of every uh, uh, inquiry into a miracle is to rule it out and shut it down and get people back to the normal practice of faith. So, you know, I think that any time anything passes the Church's muster where they say, yes, this is worthy of belief in the supernatural character of the event, we can feel pretty confident that uh, there's something there. Yes. You know, when it comes to stigmata, you know, we know there are some famous cases of this, like uh, St. Padre Pio might be the one that the one that pops into my mind. Are you aware of, you know, current circumstances of stigmata? Is this something that's happening pretty regularly? And maybe just for those who are listening who don't know what I'm talking about, you can explain what the stigmata is. Absolutely. So stigmata refers to the, uh, the, uh, the concept that a person in a very physical way manifests the wounds of Christ on their body. And, uh, you know, we, we talk about St. Saint, Saint Francis of Assisi being the very first. Some people might uh, point to a, a passage in Scripture for St. Paul, but really St. Francis is the one who uh, who who's, uh, made this uh, famous, you know. And then we have Padre Pio, one of the more recent modern examples of uh, these uh, these wounds manifesting on a, in a person's body, normally a saint, or a mystic, you might say. And so we talk about what's the point of that anyway. And I think that uh, the, these people, these saints or mystics who have these experiences are so united with Christ's passion that they, uh, in, their body manifests these wounds and they experience the passion of Christ in their own way. So it's, it's, it's really something that most of us will have no conception of what that's all about. But there are cases where the Church has, has shown that, you know, in the case of Padre Pio, for example, they've done a full-on investigation with doctors monitoring him uh, around the clock and showing that these wounds open and close. And there's actually a, uh, a famous modern example from Damascus in Syria. Her name is Mirna Nazur. And you can actually Google her name on YouTube or go on YouTube and do a search for her. And you can see they have some doctor studies where, uh, well, she's laying on a bed and they have the camera on her. It's, it's, it's older footage, but you can see the wounds open right up and close right up on camera. It's absolutely mm. amazing. I did an interview with her a few years ago in person. Absolutely incredible. Uh, to me, she's, she's a legitimate modern example of stigmata, and she had visions as well that have been approved by the church. So I think that um, these cases do happen. They're extremely rare. I've interviewed a, a couple of stigmatics in my life, and those are some of the most fascinating uh, investigations I'm ever going to do because uh, we wonder, is it a psychosomatic phenomenon? You know, are people uh, thinking so much about the passion that it just manifests on their body? But it turns out that in all the psychological studies that have ever been done related to stigmata, there's not been one case where through auto-suggestion or hypnosis that a person is able to uh, manifest uh, non-superficial wounds on their body. So we know it's something beyond just the mind over the body. It's a phenomenon that happens worldwide. It's very rare, but it truly does happen and it's one of the most fascinating phenomena that you're ever going to see. Mm. Have you have you done some research or on incorru- incorruptibility and the you know the story of the saints' bodies being um, disinterred and they find out that they have not been corrupt? Uh, what, what can you tell our, our listeners about cases? There are some famous cases of saints whose uh, the, that that you know that, that has happened to them. 
Absolutely. And in the episode of Explore with the Miracle Hunter Lourdes, which was uh, one of the first ones that came out last year, uh, I do a whole section on that uh, related to St. Bernadette Subaru, the visionary of Lourdes, who at age 14 received 18 visions of the Virgin Mary in 1858. And after she went on to uh, become a nun, uh, she was at this convent in Nebert. When she passed away at a young age, they actually put her body, uh, they buried her body, but then as is the Catholic practice, uh, to uh, get relics in the case of a pending canonization cause, uh, then they found her body was completely intact. And you can actually go there to Nevere even today. And we filmed right there, and we, we got up so close. It's absolutely amazing. Uh, she's one of the more remarkable cases of preservation in history. And, you know, it, it's one of these things where, you know, you know, when we might say, shouldn't we tell all our Protestant and atheist friends about these incorruptibles? Wouldn't they just join the Catholic Church immediately if they saw this? Well, you know, it, it's a nice idea. However, incorruptibles are so complicated. And for people who are interested in incorruptibles, I encourage them to check out my book, Science and the Miraculous. I dedicate a whole chapter to this. It's the most fascinating chapter in the whole book because, you know, there are cases when there have been preservation of these uh, saints by, uh, you know, by, by the Church. And there have been cases that they're perfect cases of, pres- of, of natural preservation. So it's amazing. But I, I like to joke, and, and, and nobody should ever start a sentence with, well, if I were God. Well, <laughs> if I were God, I would, I would make all the saints incorrupt so we would know which ones were saints and which ones weren't. And we would make, I would make them incorrupt for all time, not just for a couple hundred years, as is the case normally. And I'd make them totally incorrupt, like in the case of St. John Vianney or Padre Pio, their hearts are incorrupt but the rest of them is corruptible. So, you know, why does he do it that way? It's a question for God when we get to heaven. What's the point of that? But it really is one of these things where we are able to, in a very primal way, uh, connect with the saints, see what they really look like, be reminded that they're real people who are just like us. So some of the saints look less uh, incorrupt than others. Uh, St. Catherine of Siena, if you've ever been to Siena or seen those photos, she's not looking so good these days. But other saints uh, are quite remarkable. So it's, it's a fascinating phenomenon. There's quite a little a bit of inconsistency across the board. Some saints hundreds and hundreds of years and corrupt, others just for decades. Why does it work that way? I have no idea. It's one of the mysteries that God gives <laughs> to us. Michael O'Neill is my guest. He is known as the Miracle Hunter. And uh, I do want to thank uh, for Ricardo Flores, uh, my friend who is the founder of MadeByCatholics.com, uh, for suggesting this interview, and uh, Ricardo uh, was the one that lined this this up for us. Uh, Michael's new season of his EWTN travel series called Explore with a Miracle Hunter uh, is airing on Saturdays at 5 p.m. on EWTN. And Michael, can you give us a little bit of history about how many seasons of Explore with a Miracle Hunter have already happened, and then maybe a preview of what we can expect this coming season? Absolutely, and I think I'll, I'll answer it like this. We have Five seasons already filmed of Explore with the Miracle Hunter. One has aired and one is currently airing now. So it's very exciting for people who like this show. Uh, they're going to see a lot more of it in the future and there's more to come. Um, I'll be traveling to Poland in spring to film more episodes in Poland and Lithuania. And the concept behind this is it's a Catholic travel show to places of miracles. So I think that, um, you know, a lot of people aren't traveling these days uh, due to uh, the pandemic and due to the economy and every other reason to not travel. But this kind of brings uh, these travel places to your own home, which is kind of fun. And uh, and the other concept behind it is, is that we all hear these miracle stories. We've read about them in books, perhaps, and we have our imaginations to kind of give us a sense of what these things might look like. But what I try to do is I travel to these locations around the world 
I bring my film crew with me, and we take this beautiful drone footage and also on-site uh, beautiful uh, on-location photography and uh, and footage. And then we get we do recreations of these events. And so uh, the the recreations are quite impressive for anybody who hasn't seen the show. You know, I think that uh, the longstanding tradition, unfortunately, in Christian and Catholic cinema, has been that oh, it's a little bit cheesier uh, than uh, than the stuff that's out there in Hollywood. But I put the stuff in my programs up against anything else that's out there. It's absolutely amazing uh, to see these visions at Lourdes or at Fatima or these uh, incorruptible saints or whatever you might want to see. Uh, the my I'm, I'm blessed to work with a very talented team who bring these uh, occasions of miracles to life. So we're talking about uh, Eucharistic miracles. We're talking about Marian apparitions, cases of the stigmata, incorruptible saints, healing miracles, the full uh, set of things that the Catholic Church investigates. But uh, it's been such a blessing to work with EWTN and travel the world uh, to work with uh, to work with my film crew and bring these stories to everybody's home when they can't travel themselves. It's just a fun way to combine uh, travel and miracles together in one show. Wow, what a what a job you have, and <laughs> what a great opportunity to go to all these wonderful places. And um, the, the how do you decide which ones to go to? I'm sure there's you know you mentioned I think 2,500 Marian apparitions at the beginning of the interview. I mean, how how do you decide I'm going to do this and not that? I'm going to go to this place and not that. Uh, what, what's that that process? It's a great question, and uh, for this new season, uh, I'll rattle off the names of the episodes. So we started with an episode in Banu in, in Belgium, and then in Rome, of course, everybody knows that, Genizzano in Italy, a place of a, uh, a, a miraculous image, uh, Pont Main, one of the top uh, top highly investigated and researched Marian apparitions in history, and we're talking about something that happened in France in the 1800s, Pompeii, this, this, this place of Bartolo Longo, this, uh, this uh, blessed who's, who was a satanic priest who went on to become uh, the, the apostle of the rosary, and so many miracles were claimed there. Bereng, also in Belgium, a Marian apparition, and Trey Fontana, that's my favorite episode of all, because we tell the story of Bruno Cornacciola. This is in 1947, a man who had absolute hatred for the Catholic Church, who received a vision of Mary on his way to assassinate the Pope, and of course, he didn't assassinate the Pope, and he went on uh, to become uh, somebody who's actually being considered for sainthood. So it's, uh, it's quite a remarkable story. And I rattle off that list because Rome stands out to everyone, of course, in that list. But all the others, you might say, uh, what are those places anyway? Those aren't famous. But uh, in all my study of, uh, of miracles, and that's been for, for decades now, these are the top places of miracles in the entire world as I've come to with my research. So these places in Belgium in 1932 and 1933, they were so uh, so believable that Pope John Paul II traveled to those locations himself and met with the living visionaries. So that doesn't usually happen where a pope has a little meeting with the visionary. That never happens. Mm. So, uh, in, so there are, these are remarkable cases of the highest level, and uh, they're all believable in my book. So uh, for people who want to know where are the greatest miracles of the Catholic Church, they're all documented in this show. Explore with the Miracle Hunter on EWTN on Saturdays at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. Very nice. And, you know, we always say the the purpose of, you know, Guadalupe Radio Network, what we're doing, or EWTN, it's always to, to bring people closer to Christ, ultimately the salvation of souls, populating heaven. I'm guessing in all the work that you've done in, in you know, teaching people about these miracles that you have received some feedback saying, you know what, I was an atheist, now I believe, or, you know, this or that. Uh, has, has 
has that then been the case? And does it seem like highlighting these miracles has really been a good avenue to bring people closer to Christ? Well, I absolutely think that uh, Catholics, especially who might be lukewarm in their faith or might have questions, uh, the, the reaffirmation of the supernatural realities of our faith is huge because I think people might go and they might hear a bad homily at Mass or they might be uh, discouraged by uh, some of the other parishioners or some other reason that they kind of feel lukewarm about their faith, but you can't step away from the reality of miracles. I mean, if they really are happening, that's something we have to deal with. That's something we have to find out about. And my overarching goal in all of this is to crack the door open for believers, non-believers, skeptics, the whole deal, for them to say, huh, that's pretty interesting. I wonder if that possibly could be true. And maybe they'll go on my website, miraclehunter.com, and see all the documentation of miracles. Maybe they'll read a book. Maybe they'll just you know, open their eyes and watch, watch the program on, on Saturdays on EWTN. Um, but, you know, I just want to crack the door open to the possibility of miracles. And I think these shows, especially in the recreations, how they bring them to life again, uh, these miracle events. Um, and, and my hope is that people will just start asking questions, start saying, maybe, what if? What if these things are real? And then they'll begin to do a little bit of research. But uh, uh, I, I'm so blessed to, to get to present these stories. Yeah, very nice. I, I teach at my uh, a class at CCD at my parish, and last weekend we were talking about some Eucharistic miracles, and there was a story, I'm not sure if you're familiar with this one or not, about a lady who, I think she lived like 30 years uh, consuming only the Eucharist. Uh, are, you, are you familiar with that one, or have you heard of these cases? Yeah, I where... mean, there, there have been a number of cases uh, of what's called inedia, which uh, is the Latin way of saying not eating, yeah. um, without eating. And so it, this perhaps is referencing uh, Blessed Alexandrina de Costa from Portugal. And this is uh, there's a, a number of cases like hers. And, and strangely enough, they go together with stigmata. I'm not quite sure why God pairs those things together, but uh, many stigmatics have this phenomenon in Edia. For many years, all they survive on is the Eucharist alone. And this is another one of these remarkable things that these people have been monitored uh, by, by church officials and other and scientists and everything. And sure enough, all they have is the Eucharist. All they, and that's all they need. So, uh, you know, it's one of the types of Eucharistic miracles, you might say. Mm-hmm. Of all the, the exploration <coughs> that you've done on miracles, is there... One or two that just blew you away, or I guess maybe it's like asking somebody who their favorite child is. Is there one, is there one or two that just, you know, maybe it's something that is not, everybody has not heard of, like, you know, Lords or Fatima or something, but uh, what, what, what would you maybe suggest our listeners investigate a little bit further uh, if they wanted to look into one of these? Absolutely. And I'm going to recommend two television programs for people. Uh, these are two of my favorites that I've ever done for EWTN. And uh, on Guadalupe Radio, I'd be remiss to mention, not mention Our Lady of Guadalupe. She's my absolute favorite. And I did this program called Guadalupe Mysteries uh, some years ago. And Ricardo, who you mentioned, uh, he was uh, very instrumental in helping me set up interviews throughout all of Mexico, where I interview uh, the, the bishop of uh, the, the basilica there in, in Mexico, and also uh, Father Eduardo Chavez, you know, the, the top Guadalupe expert and the top scientist. We interview all the top people related to Guadalupe and talk about some of these incredible miracles related to the Tilma. And I don't need to tell you about that. Everybody in Guadalupe knows about those. But watch the program Guadalupe Mysteries on EWTN, and you'll be blown away. You'll learn everything that you haven't been told about Our Lady of Guadalupe, and it's absolutely amazing. But my other, one of my other favorite uh, programs that I did was related to Padre Pio. Uh, for me, he's my favorite miracle-working saint. 
And uh, in the, in that program called Miracles of Padre Pio on EWTN, another hour-long program that I did, I, I highlight three truly remarkable miracle stories. And the one story that really sticks out is I interviewed this woman who lives in Bartow, Pennsylvania, and she she helps run the Padre Pio Shrine there. And in that uh, in that instance, she, as a child, uh, she was extremely sick and uh, she was about to die. And her mother, who was Italian, learned from her other friends, this is in the year 1968, about a living saint named Padre Pio. And her Italian friends are telling her, you've got to take her to Italy and be blessed by this uh, this living saint. And sure enough, she feels inspired to do that. She feels that Padre Pio is calling to her to come quickly uh, to see me. She has a vision or, or an understanding of that. And she goes to the doctor, and the doctor says, you can't do that. Uh, your child will die on the airplane. What needs to happen is the bladder of this child needs to be removed. And so this woman, uh, she, she had her bladder, as a child, she had her bladder removed, and she was hooked up to all these tubes, and uh, she was taken to see Padre Pio in 1968. And sure enough, they met with Padre Pio uh, miraculously. I don't know how they set up that meeting, but sure enough, he blessed her, he prayed over her, and they sent her home. So she went home, uh, the woman took the daughter to, uh, to the doctor, and the doctor said what happened, and they did uh, whatever testing or x-rays or, or whatever they had available at the time, and they determined that the bladder had grown back. Mm. Anybody who has any kind of a medical background knows bladders don't grow back. And so it's an absolutely amazing thing. And so, you know, the skeptic amongst us might say, what if they, they had kind of a bad doctor who removed the appendix instead of the bladder? You know, what if they made a mistake? Well, it turns out that the doctor, the surgeon, was C. Everett Koop, who went on to become the future Surgeon General oh. of the United States. So you can't argue with that. And uh, absolutely amazing story of a miracle. And I have three miracles just like that one in this show called Miracles of Padre Pio on EWTN. So if people want to see some good miracle stories, that's where I encourage people to go to. Yeah, very nice. Uh, well, you're just a wealth of information, Michael. I really appreciate uh, speaking to you. And I want to encourage everybody to check out the new season on EWTN called Explore with the Miracle Hunter, Michael O'Neill, Saturdays at 5 o'clock Central Time. Michael, uh, thank you very much. I hope we can talk again soon and really appreciate you being a guest on the program today. Thanks, Dave. It's been great. And thanks again to Ricardo Flores for suggesting this interview and for Manny running the board. This is the KTH 910 AM interview of the week here on the Guadalupe Radio Network. God bless you. Are you making plans on where to send your kids to school next year? St. Monica Catholic School in Dallas might be the place for you. They invite you to come kick off Catholic Schools Week with them by attending their open house on Sunday, January 29th, beginning at 9 a.m. Come and see what St. Monica can offer your family. For more information, please contact Catherine Hole at chole at stmonicaschool.org or you can visit their website, stmonicaschool.org. The Advent and Christmas seasons are approaching and Little Angels Catholic Store in Capel wants to help you make it a prayerful and spiritual time. You can find books and resources to fill your Advent with a sense of holy anticipation and they have Christmas gifts for your loved ones including rosaries and religious jewelry, music, artwork, nativity sets, stocking stuffers and more. Little Angels is a longtime sponsor of the GRM. They're located at 600 East Sandy Lake Road in Capel, just west of St. Anne Parish. They can be reached at 972-304-5200. 
Hi, everybody, and welcome to the interview of the week here on KTH 910 AM on the Guadalupe Radio Network. Thanks for joining us. An interesting topic we have for the program today. This is something that personally interests me and excites me. I uh, Not so many months ago, I got an email uh, from a gentleman named Carlos Crespo saying that plans were underway to... Uh, bring a Chesterton Academy High School to Fort Worth. And I love G.K. Chesterton. I love academics. I love uh, a, a lot of things that this uh, school has to offer. And so I went to one of their meetings, got to know them, and asked them to come and do an interview and kind of update our audience about what's what's going on, what the plans are. So Carlos Crespo is in studio with me. He's president of the board of uh, Chesterton Academy of Fort Worth, and also with him, Stephen Barmore, who is the vice president. They have a secretary by the name of Doug Allen. He's not here with us. Website, ChestertonAcademyFW.org. And so in the next 25 minutes or so, we're going to just find out what's going on with this potential new high school in the the Fort Worth Diocese proper Um but uh, what exactly, how it's affiliated with the Forward Diocese, we'll get into that as well. So welcome to both of you. Thanks for being here. And uh, if you could just tell us a little bit about yourself and your background and uh, why you're inspired to be involved with Chester Academy. We'll start with you, Carlos. Yeah, thanks for having us, Dave. Well, like you said, yeah, my name is Carlos Crespo. I'm originally from Ecuador. Uh, I first came to uh, Texas uh, when I was 19. Uh, I went to TCU. And you can say what kept me here was a, was a beautiful Texan woman. So I'm, I'm pretty much, and now we have a, a five-year-old, so you can call me an adoptive uh, Texan now. Uh, I, like I said, I went to TCU and I'm, I'm an engineer. Uh, and then I, I did my MBA at TCU okay. as well. Um, and then, uh, yeah, as, uh, since I became a parent, uh, yeah, I've been concerned, more concerned about the education for our children. So, yeah. We can say, I mean, that would be the the, the main mo- uh, motivator that uh, uh, made us uh, do what we're doing today, which is to start a, a Catholic high school in, in our city. Yeah, very good. Stephen, how about you? Can you tell our listeners about yourself? Yeah, hi, Dave, thanks again for having us. We appreciate it very much. Um, I'm Stephen Barmore. I'm from the Houston area. been up here for about a decade. Um, I'm here probably as an effect of a philosophy professor I had uh, as an undergraduate. Uh, at the time, I was an, uh, an atheist. Um, this philosophy professor was able to expose uh, his students, including me, to the preambles to the faith. He himself was a practicing Catholic. He drew me in that way intellectually, uh, which led to my conversion uh, to the Catholic Church in 2010. Um, married, been married for 10 years. We have three beautiful daughters. And, um, yeah, the combined experience of coming to the faith through, through teaching led me to first become a teacher myself, taught for eight years, and uh, also to want to share the faith with others. Yeah, very good. Uh, interesting backgrounds for both of you, for sure. Uh, Carlos, a lot of people have never heard of Chesterton Academy, or they're hearing about it for mm-hmm. the first time. I know that there are others and across the country, and others are mm-hmm. popping up even uh, as close to us as Wichita Falls, as you told me before we started. What is Chesterton Academy, and a little bit about the history of it, if you could. Yeah, of course. Uh, so... From from their website, the Chesterton Schools Network, uh, it says in, in 2007, uh, it was Tom Bengtson and Dale Alquist. Dale Alquist, I'm sure that's a name very mm-hmm. familiar to yeah. your listeners. Uh, they co-founded the first Chesterton Academy. Similar to, to us uh, here in Fort Worth, they had 
young families at the time, and they were concerned. Uh, they were seeking for other alternatives uh, as far as Catholic high school, Catholic education uh, for their for their children. So uh, they they got together and they started uh, Chesterton Academy. Now, obviously, Del Alquist being a uh, Chesterton scholar, uh, mm-hmm. you can you can see why they named it Chesterton Academy. Uh, and their mission was to offer a classical integrated high school education that was faithful to the Catholic Church and affordable for families of average means. Yeah. And since then, uh, a few years later, so in 2013, apparently from yet since they opened the school until yet 20 through 2013, they had several requests to open more Chesterton Academies, uh, mainly in the Midwest because that's where it started in Minneapolis. And so they started the, the Chesterton Schools Network, uh, mm. part of the uh, the Society of, of G.K. Chesterton. And since then, uh, since yeah, 2013, they have opened another, I want to say, 43 schools. So according to their website, they have 44 operating schools today. Uh, we are one of, I think, between 10 and 15, I, I cannot recall the number, that will, God willing, uh, open uh, in the fall of 2023. Wow. And we would be one of three that will op- open in, um, in, in the fall of 2023 in Texas. Okay. Okay. Of the 44, there are al- already two uh, here in Texas. Okay. Very good. Mm-hmm. Well, thank, thank you for that background. Mm-hmm. Uh, Stephen, you mentioned your love of academics and philosophy. And so I'm guessing you're very likely a fan of GK Chesterton himself. And I, I want to make sure, you know, for listeners who don't even know who this is or may not be familiar with him, I'm a big fan and I love his writing, but uh, could you just give our listeners a little bit of a bio of Ch- GK Chesterton himself and also perhaps how, you know, his influence, of course, he's passed away, but uh, it plays into Chesterton Academies. Sure. I'm not sure that I could do justice to, you know, a biography of, of, of Chesterton, even in a kind of thumbnail sketch. Uh, I first discovered his writings um, when I was in college. I was meeting with some evangelical uh, Christians who were reading uh, this book called Heretics. I'd never heard of G.K. Chesterton before. I was like, well, what is this? And I got into it and just the, um, the wit, um, the, the depth, um, the, the humor uh, drew me in. Uh, and, and provoked um, some serious thought about um, about truth, about uh, about falsehood. Is it is it mocks and, and kind of apes truth? Um, and that you know served me well along my my journey into the Catholic uh, religion. Um, Chesterton was you know he was a journalist, he was a novelist, um, he was a humorist. He wrote thousands of things. Um, many many of your listeners, I'm sure, have read G.K. Chesterton's work. If you haven't, you should. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Everlasting Man, Orthodoxy, Heretics, uh, Father Brown stories, just to name a few. Yeah, yeah. He was English, and mm-hmm. I think he was maybe a contemporary of like C.S. Lewis and Gerard Tolkien. I think he lived a little bit in, older than them, but yes, yeah, you can say came that, before. Then. He influenced them, in yes, fact. Correct. I think had a great influence mm-hmm. on Tolkin and C.S. Lewis, mm-hmm. and so that that in, in and of itself, <laughs> correct. Uh, yeah, actually, should, should, I think uh, C.S. Lewis. Uh, uh, Part of his conversion uh, was influenced by the writings of G.K. Chesterton, yeah, correct? Yeah, exactly. Uh, mm-hmm. Carlos, the Chesterton Academy is called a classical high school in the Catholic tradition. And I think mm-hmm. a lot of people are wondering, okay, is this a diocesan school? Is it a charter school? What exactly is the classification and how is it different from a, a school like, say, Nolan or uh, Casada or Great Hearts or, you know, Founders or something like that? So what, 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 how, what is, how do you describe it? Yeah, I'll, I'll try to answer uh, bits and pieces of that question, and then I will defer to Stephen 
to talk about how the curriculum differentiates. Okay. Uh, Stephen would be more knowledge- knowledgeable about that. But as far as like, what is the classification of this Chesterton Academy? So it will not be a diocesan school. So uh, as per the uh, canon law, I believe uh, you, schools can only be called Catholic uh, according to the uh, if the bishop grants that title. Okay. We will be an independent private school that teaches Catholic doctrine. We will have theology, philosophy. Uh, we'll we'll uh, uh, teach the Bible, Old Testament, New New Testament. Um, so, like in the, like I said, it will not be diocesan. Uh, how it will differentiate from other diocesan schools and even charter schools, uh, for example. So I mentioned how we will teach theology and Catholic doc- doctrine, which mm-hmm. many uh, charter schools don't. Uh, yeah, I'm thinking of Great I, Hearts. I probably and, can't. And, yeah, correct. Yeah. I'm thinking of Great Hearts and, and Founders. And uh, the Chesterton Academy of Fort Worth will also be, by design, uh, a small school. We would like to cap the total number of students for four years, 9 through 12, at 200. And Mm -hmm. that is uh, the suggestion uh, of the Chesterton Schools Network. And the reason for that is because once you go above 200 students, it's a lot harder to keep up with with the culture that a Chesterton Academy wants to foster, which yeah. is which is that of uh, joy, gratitude, uh, joy, gratitude, uh, and wonder, which mm-hmm. are three main characteristics of the writings of G.K. Chesterton. And as far as the curric- curriculum, the integrated curriculum, uh, I'm, I will probably defer to, to Stephen to talk a little bit about that and how it differentiates from, from okay. other schools. Yeah, Stephen? Sure, yeah. I mean, we could talk about the integrated curriculum. Um, by integrated curriculum, we mean at least two things. Um, one, all of the subjects that are taught um, by grade level are integrated with one another. So your freshman year is going to treat the ancient world. In theology, you're going to read the Old Testament. You're going to read, in literature, you're going to read Homer. In the philosophy uh, class, you're going to you know, be exposed to the pre-Socratics up to Plato and Aristotle. Mm-hmm. Um, you're going to move into the sophomore year, um, the early church up to the low Middle Ages, junior year, high Middle Ages to the Renaissance, and in your senior year from the Renaissance to the modern age. Um, in terms of it's, you know, the other aspect I should say about its integration is the integration of faith and reason, um, which would differentiate it from your charter schools who offer also offer and do it well, a classical education. So the overt, explicit teaching uh, or, or intended transmission of Catholic doctrine is, is part of a Chesterton Academy. Um, you could also contrast both what we're attempting to do with Chesterton Academy and other um, uh, charter schools with the um, with what goes on in public schools. Public schools has as their you know as their mission to make students college career military ready. Mm-hmm. Whereas um, Chesterton Academy has as its mission to prepare students for the four last things: um, death, judgment, heaven, and hell. And so the the goal of uh, Chesterton Academy through its curriculum, through the Socratic method, through the um, leading of students from wonder, which is the first principle of learning, um, through the various stages of their intellectual and spiritual and social formation, is to get them to heaven. That's the yeah. goal, which we share, obviously, with diocesan schools um, and any other Catholic school. 
Yeah. Well, but then, as Carlos mentioned, the size. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, that's a lot smaller than I thought it would be. But mm-hmm. you, for reasons you explained, you want that uh, that that small, intimate approach. I'm sure you want the teacher-student ratio to be to be pretty yeah. low as well. If you're just joining us, this is the interview of the week here on the Guadalupe Radio Network. I have in studio with me Carlos Crespo, president of the board of the. Uh, the the new newly uh, planning stage of a Chesterton Academy of Fort Worth. Stephen Barmore is the vice president of the board. The website for Chesterton Academy of Fort Worth is chestertonacademyfw.org. And um, the plan is, uh, God willing, for fall of 23, uh, for school to begin at this academy. And, uh, so if one of you could tell me, when did this effort begin uh, and... Um, you know, how, how it's kind of going along so far. I mean, I think I'm trying to think of when I went to that first organizational meeting. It must have been at least, uh, gosh, four, three, four months ago. It was Maybe back in May. Back, mm-hmm. Okay, back in May. So half a year ago or so. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so, um, when did it start and kind of where, where are you at this point? Well, uh, Stevens and, uh, and, and my family, we, we've known each other since 2012. Uh, at the time, both of our, our wives, well, at the time, my, my girlfriend, now now my wife, we're going through RCIA, so uh, we've known each other for yeah ten we can say ten years, and I knew Stephen was a was a teacher. So uh, fast forward to I believe it was October of 2019. Uh, I I called Stephen for a beer and uh, <laughs> I, I pitched the idea. Yeah. Hey, why don't we start school, uh, a high school? Uh, and the the idea came to me because, like I said, I mean I had the time. I had a two year old. And then I started thinking about his education and, and Catholic schools. I come from a, uh, Ecuador, which is a mostly Catholic country, and yeah. my hometown had you can choose from wherever high school schools that you that you that you, that you wanted. So why uh, the question came up? Why doesn't Fort Worth have more Catholic high schools? So yeah, I, I threw the idea to to uh, uh, Stephen, and um, a few months later, in March of 2020. Uh, I think, believe it was around that time. It was definitely March, my birthday. My wife bought me a membership to the Society of G.K. Chesterton. Uh. I started getting newsletters from them. And uh, one of those newsletters called uh, mentioned how they were going to open about 12 schools that, that fall. Mm-hmm. So we looked into that idea. I mean, it was a Catholic. It was a high school. It was classical, which is what we wanted. And, uh, of course, it was... G.K. Chesterton, which at the time I was uh, starting to to discover, and I, I just fell in love with his writings. It just it was perfect. And uh, since then, yeah, we, we we reached out to the Chesterton Schools Network, and uh, they have actually pretty much guided us through the process. Like I said before, in 2013, the Chesterton Schools Network was uh, established with the purpose to uh, guide groups of families like us. I mean, this is a grassroots effort. Yeah, yeah. Uh, to start a school, a high school. Yeah, you mentioned the grassroots effort. Uh, probably one of the biggest challenges is just letting people know that this is happening. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, things like this are very helpful, radio interviews, and I'm sure you have an email list and all that. So uh, what else, Stephen, has been the, the the methodology of trying to get the word out and how, how successful have you been to bring awareness of, about this effort? Sure. It's been, a, it's been as Carlos has described it, a uh, grassroots effort um, spread primarily through word of mouth, uh, through these in- info sessions that we we host, I say we um, Alan, the Allen family graciously hosts. Um, we are on social media, Facebook. You can find us there. We have a website, um, and just yeah, through word of mouth, it is it, you know knowledge of the Chesterton Academy. 
our efforts has has spread from uh, from parish to parish, family to family. Mm-hmm. You mentioned the the response that you you get is people's like, yeah, yeah, we need another high school in Fort Worth, and I think everybody would agree with that. I think the diocesan office certainly would say, gosh, because you got Nolan, you got uh, Casada, and that's pretty much it for this huge growing uh, diocese. Cristo Cristo Rey as well. Yeah, you okay, can, can, yeah, Cristo can, Rey. Yeah, I forgot I forgot yeah. about them. Uh, so what what other kind of feedback are you getting? What are people at? What questions are they ask? Or are they talking about, you know, when you have these informational meetings or what kind of response overall are you getting? Uh, I would say for, uh, for now, a moderate, uh, moderately good uh, response, considering that um, it's mainly word of mouth. And yeah. uh, now after this interview, we hope the word will get out explode. even more. <laughs> so, yeah, that, that, is, that, is, that is a hope. Uh, but mainly, uh, we've been reaching out to, uh, so for example, uh, the Barmores here, as well as the Allens, uh, the other family on the board, they are uh, homeschooling families. So we've been mainly focused on that group of, uh, of families. Uh, we see the homeschoolers, um, a large chunk of those homeschoolers uh, come to our school, mm-hmm. as well as uh, charter schoolers. Uh, of course, many devout Catholic families who want to have the Catholic uh, identity in their, in their school. And one thing that attracts them uh Quite significantly, I would say is that uh, Chesterton Academy offers daily mass. Daily mass is required uh, for every student, okay. Catholic or no, or not, or, or no Catholic, uh, but they're required to go uh, to go to mass. So the response, I would say, it's it ha- has been has been good. Uh, where I am, I've been surprised. Where uh, a little bit uh, is in the response we've had from uh, potential teachers. Mm. Uh, Lot of interest. Uh, we have we haven't uh, we haven't even posted. Uh, positions or anything like that we have reached out to the university of dallas we have had a, a couple conversations with them and uh yeah uh, um about i would say uh, a few of them uh, a few uh, potential teachers that has, uh, have reached out to us interested in in a position at a chesterton academy and what is calling them to that is the the catholic identity mm-hmm uh, which at the moment there right now those teachers uh, they are not teaching at a catholic institution yeah yeah mm-hmm. uh fall of 23 you know here mm-hmm. we are in november as of this recording and fall of 23 not that i have to tell y'all is like right around the corner you know less yeah. than a year away how realistic uh is is that set in stone is that the plan how many students would you like to start out with I, you're probably not going to have your 200 students yet that's kind of where you're Correct. growing to but mm-hmm. uh what, what do you think is is you think that's a, a realistic goal to start in the fall of 23 and how many students do you think you'd like to have if god wills it then it will happen um it, it could also uh have to wait until the following year yeah uh, i think to make we need what, 15 to 25 students 15 to 25 students. yeah and so you know we're moving at this each each day each step um looking to see if the barriers that present themselves can be surmounted and as of yet uh nothing has has stopped the effort mm-hmm. Uh, we're looking to make um, 15 to 25 students to have our ninth grade class. Yeah. We might accept some, maybe for a 10th grade class. But you know, if you if you would normally matriculate into an 11th or 12th grade, we're not looking for that. So we're you know our target um, age group there would be you know going into freshman year right, right. next year. Do uh, a stair step approach. Location? Stair-step. Do you guys have a, a location picked yet? Uh, at the moment, uh, no. We we do not have a location. We are looking looking for property uh, west of uh, thirty five in the Fort Worth area, of course. Uh, 
Yeah, the reason, well, two reasons. Uh, yeah, we of course, we have uh, Nolan uh, east of, of Fort Worth, so we want to be located uh, opposite. And uh, also, like I said, I mean, for the Fort Worth Diocese, many Catholic families uh, are, are choosing to go um, to move to the southwest mm-hmm. Fort Worth, so think of uh, Alito. And uh, we would also uh, like to cater to uh, families in Weatherford. Yeah. I know, I understand Weatherford... Um, yeah, there's an important Catholic community there that uh, I'm sure they would be interested in a, in a school uh, for their children. Yeah. You mentioned uh, affordable uh, early on in the interview. Do you have an idea yet of what the costs are going to be, perhaps compared to, uh, you know, regular Catholic schools, which I know that that can be very prohibitive for a lot of people who want to send their, their kids to Catholic schools. So so do you have a ballpark of what, what tuition would cost and is financial aid going to be a possibility? Um, yeah, seven to eight thousand per year per student is the Chesterton Schools Network, um, you know, model. That's what we're, yeah. you know, again, their, their stated mission is to provide a Catholic education for um, working families of, of you know, of, of average means. Mm-hmm. And while you know, certainly diocesan high schools do offer tuition assistance and scholarship programs, it's it's where the the tuition is for everybody at a Chesterton Academy seven yeah. to eight thousand per year per student. Yeah, mm-hmm. and that's I, I don't know exactly what Catholic high schools are charging these days. I went to Jesuit, and I know mm-hmm. you know from when the time I graduated to now, it's probably you know twenty times what what we were paying back then. So yeah, that mm-hmm. seems relatively low, I think, compared to most uh, pri- private schools. Uh-huh. That's within yeah. the average of all Chesterton Academies ac- across the the country, and also is very comparable to the tuition that. The K through eight Catholic schools, uh, the yeah. two largest K through eight Catholic schools, charge in in Fort Worth. Yeah. Now with two hundred students, um, I, I don't know. You, uh, you down the road, if if you know this comes to fruition ten years from now, do you do you have the football and the basketball team and the volleyball team and the chess club and you know, uh, the, are, what would the extracurriculars look like? Would well, you say they're they're necessary yeah. as part of a whole person formation? You've got to have intellectual, spiritual, and social. Uh, formation. So, um, extracurriculars at, at Chesterton schools are, are student driven, uh, you know, parent supported, very much community driven. Um, yeah, starting out with 15 students, you know, you're limited in what you can do, but you're not restricted from what you want to do in terms mm-hmm. of extracurriculars. So, if the students want to have a soccer team, we're going to have a soccer team. Yeah. If that means we, we cooperate with, um, like a YMCA in the area, then that's the way we'll do it. Um, pulling together resources. You know, if that means buying a hundred dollar goal, um, you know, basketball goal and setting it up in the, you know, <laughs> parking lot, then that's how we'll do it at first. But by all means, uh, any, you know, student club, uh, or sport or group is highly encouraged, uh, and student driven. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're talking about the, the plans for a Chesterton Academy in Fort Worth. My guests are Carlos Crespo and Stephen Barmore. They are the president and vice president, respectively, of the board of Catholic, um, Chesterton Academy Fort Worth. Website is chestertonacademyfw.org. We're down to about two minutes. And so I just want to close out here by, asking you to tell our listeners how they can learn more and also how they can get in touch with you if they are interested in applying for a position, learning more, getting a, I guess there's not tours because there's no physical uh, uh, school yet, but if they want to come to one of your information sessions or that kind of thing. Can you tell us about that, Carlos? Yeah, well, let me uh, first uh, mention the uh, next uh, info session we have on November 10th at uh, 630 if you want uh, details about that session, you can go to our website, uh, chestertonacademyfw.org. 
you can RSVP through through the website, or uh, you can also email us at um, info at chestertonacademyfw.org. Email address is there. Uh, on the website as well. Uh, we usually answer within, yeah, with 40, 48 hours. And also, yeah, for, for, the, for parents who are interested in, in enrolling their children and for, uh, teachers who are interested in, a, in, a, uh, in, in working for, for a authentically Catholic, uh, institution like Chesterton Academy, like we wish a Chesterton Academy for Worth, uh, will be. Okay. And you plan on having these information sessions uh, pretty regularly and yeah, the, this, the end uh-huh. of this year and into next year as well? Correct. Yeah. So this. Uh, this- Thanks for listening to KATH 910 AM, Frisco, Dallas, Fort Worth. Catholic radio for your soul in North Texas on the Guadalupe Radio Network. Heard also at grnonline.com and on your smartphone.